Hello, I'm Mark McCurgo and welcome to the Village in the City podcast, helping you build micro-local community where you live. So welcome everybody to the 10th Village in the City podcast. And this is the first one that we've recorded specifically as a podcast. And I'm very delighted to be joined by Susan Speak and Siobhan Nalan, who are both connected with the last aid movement in Scotland particularly around the Highland Hospice in Inverness. And Susan is the last aid development officer, the only one in the world, I'm told. We'll find out more about that from her in a minute. And Siobhan is uh, the last aid course director for Scotland. The last aid is about working with the dying and those around them. And so it's a difficult topic sometimes to broach. And I'm very excited to welcome you both onto the call, Susan and Siobhan. Uh, I'm looking forward to chatting to you. Say hello, please. Hi, everybody. How are you? I'm Susan. Yeah, thank you for the lovely introduction, Mark. Hi, I'm Siobhan. Excellent. <laughs> That's all I'll give. I'm going on a one-name basis like Madonna. <laughs> <laughs> Wonderful. Thank you. So, look, the first question is, is let's start at the beginning. What, what is Last Aid and how did it start? Last Aid is uh, this brilliant concept that uh, came from um, a consultant, a palliative care consultant in Germany called George Bollig. And George had worked, you know, he had volunteered with um, the St. John's Ambulance, no, it was the Red Cross, um, as a teenager. And then he went on to become a paramedic and then trained to become a doctor and worked in emergency medicine for quite a while and started to kind of notice I suppose in that that there were people who were living with life-limiting conditions coming through the doors of the emergency departments. He then went on and developed his repertoire and became a palliative care consultant and in his research and in his development of his skills he realized that there was this public knowledge gap there was a deficit in the public eye where he drew parallels to how first aid was rolled out and how CPR training um, basic life support training was rolled out in Seattle in America and there was a huge public knowledge drive to to develop the the skills of the public in, in dealing with cardiac arrests and that it showed a massive improvement in the outcomes of people who had had a cardiac arrest or sudden event on the streets of Seattle. So he developed this concept around the first aid, well, last aid, and um, it has just gone from strength to strength across Europe and the world now because of the branding, first of all, um, you know, draws people's attention to it, and then the ethos and the concept of what it's putting out there. So the idea is that it's to normalize um, death um, as a part of our life you know it's part of society and to try to demystify it so it brings together an awful lot of core work that goes on um, in our work in palliative care and it brings it to the public eye so it doesn't shy away from that. Siobhan and Susan you, you're both involved in the hospice movement I think as well and so you if you like have a professional interest in this but my understanding is that Last aid is a sort of thing anyone could get involved with. Is that right? Yeah, absolutely. So anyone, it should be anyone can attend. Basically, it's, it's that anybody from all walks of life. And I suppose that's that real important bit. I was speaking 
yesterday to somebody who's trying to set up death cafes and she's a nurse I'm a nurse by background palliative care nurse by background and the issue is that um, we kind of medicalize everything we medicalize death and death has been happening way before our profession even existed you know uh, it, it's just part and parcel of things so by medicalizing it we've disempowered the public and been able to deal with them themselves and I suppose in a lot of what you do in village in the city it's that kind of trying to get people back into owning things themselves well death is one of those things that we we are aiming to get out of the medical um hold and back into the community yeah so this community aspect is very important to us as far as village in the city goes and this idea that death is part of how what a community includes and how people handle death and dying uh, within their community, uh, there is a great potential for empowering people, as you say, to do things. And particularly when they might feel very nervous or uncertain or worried about that, that they might do something wrong or make things worse. So what's your finding about the way that when people learn about last aid, what difference does it make for them, do you think? Well, we know that we um, were recently part of an academics research study inquiring about people's confidence in death literacy. So this is a concept that was brought about in Australia, um, the death literacy index and whether or not people have a confidence in talking about death and dying, addressing death and dying and reaching out to other people who are going through these parts um, of life in their community. And this research study found that last aid was increasing people's confidence. Some people had no confidence in talking about it beforehand, and then they had far greater confidence. Others had a medium confidence, let's say, and then it increased um, kind of not so dramatically after the course. But the main findings of the study was that last aid increased people's confidence and awareness of talking about death and dying. So that's one kind of major cultural change that we saw within that study cohort was that it's changing people's confidence. So when we started out with Last Aid back in uh, 2019, Kenny, our CEO, had come up with this idea about whether or not we would kind of approach Police Scotland maybe around whether they would take part in it as part of our pilot and they did and that partnership has grown strength to strength and one of the things that they feed back in those conversations with us is that they are going through these things themselves in their own lives they're having to deal with caring in their own lives um, so their own well-being is affected and now with this knowledge that they have through the last aid course they're aware of what to expect it's not kind of coming at them left field you know that their mother who has been unwell for a while is now actually dying or they know how to navigate the system a little bit better and who they need to contact um, and so that practical approach to the last day course where it's actually filling you with a bit of information and arming you with that information so that you have a little bit more control of the situation and where control in itself at end of life and what we see in palliative care is loss of control is a massive factor um, and it can really adversely affect your outcomes even pre-bereavement but post post-death as well in the bereavement stage so so we kind of that's my taking from it and I suppose in the layman's terms you know kind of taking professionals out of the mix here and putting this back to the public um, which is the real hope for last aid is that if 
I see it with maybe groups of people. The word of mouth is quite powerful within that stage. And myself and Susan were looking over this recently. So word of mouth is really powerful and people are talking about last aid and then, well, what is last aid? And even by that branding alone, then there's a discussion around, well, last aid is this and why would you attend a course like that? You know, and then it kind of opens out and it can start to just normalize the attending a course to actually get a little bit more information on this. Well, why wouldn't you, you know, so. Well, I'd like to come back to the course in a few minutes if I if we can, because I've done the course and it's excellent. So we'll talk more about that. And how people can get involved but susan you're you're the first uh, last aid development officer in the world maybe you could say a bit words about what word about what you do and and how last aid has spread to being an international thing so siobhan is the director of last aid scotland and siobhan found that the movement the concept was growing and basically they needed somebody full-time to roll out the development work and put all their energies into that. It's really exciting. I am a physiotherapist to trade and I have worked in cancer services for 12 years. So it's a it's a topic very close to my heart as well um, that people should have quality of life to the end of their life. Um, and this is a public awareness course and it's also a health improvement course, I think. So it's, it's just really good to feel like we're making inroads back to communities. The way that I think about it is that we're trying to turn back the clock here. Um, I'm going to say it's about 1950, where people did look after their own um, and people did look after people who were dying and communities helped them to do that. Yeah, it's it's still a health promotion course at the end of the day and something that's quite close to my heart as well. Yes, and I think it's it's in quite a number of countries now, isn't it? Is that right? Yep. It very much started out being Last Aid Europe, um, but now Australia, Canada, Siobhan can come and help me with this as well. I think Brazil also um, has come on board. So, yeah, it's it's gaining momentum, which is brilliant. Um, Yeah. And we've got an international conference coming up as well. So that's that's great. Great for for George Bolig, who's still very spearheading the movement Mm -hmm. to have all this going on and the interest there. So now the heart of this thing is the course. Anyone, I think, can come and do this course. I did it online, and I think it took us uh, three and a half or four hours to do. It was excellent. So say a few words about the course and what's in it and why people might be interested to do it. So the course covers dying as a part of normal living. It also covers planning ahead. So I think lots of people attend for lots of different reasons, but planning ahead is normalising that conversation around making a will. What does that mean? Um, There's also the third section is relieving suffering, and that emphasis is very much not on medical relief of suffering. It's on the compassion of human beings, um, how the compassion of a loved one can help suffering. The final course is Final Goodbyes, and we look at the different ways to, it's not all I used to think, so I did this job that it was a funeral or a commission, those are your choices. Um, I now have a big list of things that are possible options, um, and we work with other providers, I guess, or people with an interest who very much can help people make choices um, as regards how they would like 
their funeral commission end of life ceremony to go. And it is for everyone. It's for absolutely everyone to attend. So we've had people, Siobhan and I have had people um, on a course who said that you know she was coming because her mother was in the situation where she was dying and a friend had recommended it. And at the end of the course, she was very much like, this is not just for me, it's for everyone. So mm -hmm. we were delighted with that. <laughs> and I think to add on to what Susan said, there's so there's the element which younger people actually enjoy is the practical last aid. So what because, again, what we find um, that with all parts of our life, we've that whole person approach, the feeling of being hopeless and not being able to do anything for the person that you're looking after at home or for your your loved one your relative you feel like you can't do anything but actually there's so many things that we would innately do um, and just instinctively do as humans that we've, we're afraid if we do that we might disrupt the care at regimen maybe so we're kind of almost putting that back that there's a practical element to things you can look after somebody but just by being there you are actually providing a huge amount of comfort and ease of suffering but it's it's trying to be confident and I suppose that's that going back to this whole importance of the course it's the bringing back the confidence to the person to be able to do this and not feel like they're being a bit um, I don't know it's the feeling useless I've been I've been there I know what it feels like when you feel like you're not doing anything therefore you must be you must do something so you must go and find somebody to help out and we, the reality is that's that's not always needed so um, so yeah and then the other thing around grief as well which is really important and that important take-home message is that everybody grieves really differently so for families who are going through um, an acute grief it's to try and understand that maybe your brother isn't going to grieve the same way or maybe your sister won't or whatever and that's okay too but until this course I never really had that spelled out to me before so I, I think it's a really useful message as well. Yes absolutely I think this idea of becoming more familiar with death seems to be uh, an important factor in 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 hope, coping with life, if you like. I'm I'm a little fortunate. My wife Jenny has been a humanist funeral celebrant for a long time, uh, and so she creates and and leads uh, humanist um, ceremonies uh, for the departed. That means she works with people at a very tough time. You know, the person's just died, or maybe about to die, and you've got to think about what to do. Uh, but I feel that we we are much stronger for for that death coming into our house you know, several times a year, it's a strange thing. It, 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 you get more, more familiar with this idea and less scared of it. And yeah. you're right, uh, Susan, about the, the, the number of options that there are now for saying final goodbyes. There's a vast array of things. And things like, um, I think I even learned this on the course, you can be buried in your own garden if you, uh, if you, if you wish, you know, with, as long as you're the landowner and you give yourself permission. <laughs> there's, yeah. these, there are, there's much more flexibility than people expect, I think. A quick reminder that you're listening to the Village in the City podcast, helping you build micro-local community where you live. Well, we opened up the call to questions at this point, and the first person in was Lynn from Musselburgh near Edinburgh. Thank you for that, Susan and Siobhan, and Mark as well, for 
I think just bringing in some really helpful questions. Um, so yeah, my background, 20 years in palliative care. So death has been a part of my household and comfortably so to the point where my grown up children are sort of, yes, mum, we know. Yeah. <laughs> um, um, and I totally appreciate that that comfort brings with it an ability and a confidence to just notice when an opening comes up in a conversation yes. and, and take it and, and it may be obstructed and then you move on or it may be welcomed and then you just take it further. So, but I learned that over 20 years and that's a very yes. different experience. Um, I think one of the things that really struck me, maybe we could explore together. Um, you know, you mentioned Susan, you know, take us back to the 1950s. And I totally think that that's true. I suppose what's, what made me think, what I thought about when you said that was that we're in a generation now where, you know, we're two generations away from the lived experience of that. So we're moving into, a, I suppose, a cultural shift, certainly in terms of social media and people being disconnected in a strange way and all of these things being out there, but not necessarily lived experientially. Yeah. Um, so it strikes me that a course like this is, is even more important because there's only going to be another generation, for example, where my mum dies and I've lost a whole, I've lost a whole connection to, to the 1950s when I was born in the 60s. So I, that really struck me when you said that, that it's familiar to me because of 20 years of lived experience. But increasingly, if it wasn't for that, my children wouldn't have experienced death. So just a wee story, my dad died a few years back and he died at home and I was very comfortable caring for him. And we were all at his bedside when he died. And what really struck me was my mum at the time was 84 and my daughters were in their late 20s. And it was the first death my mum had seen at yeah. the age of 84. Wow. And it was the first death my girls had seen at the age of 20. And we all were involved in his uh, aftercare, everything. And I thought, wow, that's like 60 years uh, of condensed experience brought into their lives and we talk about it from time to time as being a really significant Im important experience in their lives so yeah just I think, yeah I I think so I'm kind of going to pass this to Siobhan as well but so Siobhan um, you're from Southern Ireland mm -hmm. um, and a, a lady I spoke to yesterday uh, from the Western Isles of Scotland um, very much saying that it is still tradition to have the body brought back into the house yeah. um, and to say your final farewells in your own home and maybe not even brought back in exactly as you've explained Lynn that you are you you are there you're there you're taking part in this really significant part of your father's life and also your mother's life and also your daughter's lives you're absolutely right. We we need to kind of bring this back now before we lose this, because I am I'm now of the opinion this is a very important, it's almost a privilege, I think, to be that close to someone and to be able to spend that time with them. Siobhan, I don't know if you want to add to that. Yeah, so um, so in the, I speak about a lot in the course, Lynn, you know, around the Irish culture and death and dying and but it's funny because while I really value it and I'm I draw from that experience a lot it doesn't fit everybody who's my age or you know there's still people who are not happy with this and it might be because there's those gaps of kind of death and memory you know and that the last person that they saw who was dead was you know 30 years ago or whatever so it's now it is gone a whole generation and a bit away from them 
Um, but what I see with my own family is compassion. And I think compassion is very deep in, in us as humans. And it doesn't take much just to take it up to the surface. So with death, we all know that we need to be compassionate to the person who's dying. Or, you know, again, it's just an instinctive human way. But how we show it is is all variable and changing. Mm. So I, I would be worried that if we don't get the likes of these courses out and the messages out there and for communities to decide then how they want to use this or the person attending, how they want to use it. If we don't get this information out, then it does get lost, like what Susan's saying. Um, and I mean, Lynn, you'll know this, you know, just from palliative care experience, every family will react differently and every community around that family reacts differently to the family. The one of the big things that I've taken away from it, like I said, about grieving is is different. We had a facilitator attend. Uh, he was he trained up as a facilitator alongside myself and the original cohort. And um, he said after his wife died, the people used to cross the street to avoid him. And it was one of the, like he was, um, you know, in the healthcare professionals, he'd he had always been kind of a staple within communities, but he found this to be really upsetting. So how do we change that? How do we bring that confidence back so that people aren't feeling isolated in their grief? And with that knock on effect, like Susan said, it's kind of that health improvement approach so that it brings people together and we don't have the same negative impacts of the death after the death has occurred. One of the things that I picked up from the picked up from the course, uh, the course was it's not just about helping the dying, if you like. It is very much also helping those around them, uh, and that includes the you know the grieving family and whoever else. Uh, I'm remembering a time years ago I went saw a play in London called Absent Friends by Alan I think mm-hmm. Alan Aitbourne, where the plot revolves around somebody's wife has just died on holiday and he's come back and he's visiting fans and they they are trying desperately not to talk about it. And he only wants to talk about it. And of course, that is then the vehicle for a lot of humour and and, uh, uncertainty and and difficult situations, which is played very well. Uh, But I think it's also that how do you how do you work with how what are you supposed to say to, you know, the partner of someone who's just died? It's it's, it feels really tough. And I think the course explores that very nicely. And it also acknowledges this this thing that you've talked about, that people respond in all sorts of different ways. It really doesn't try and tell you this is the way you must do it. It's kind of opening possibilities and uh, and saying some people think this, some people think that, and, and really encouraging us all to, to to make our own judgments on that, which I thought was really refreshing, and I really enjoyed that. Pam, did you have something? Does, does the course uh, include sudden death, where you, you can't actually prepare and say goodbyes, you know? <laughs> it just some you know it's a sudden death so what does it the course cover that that's so thanks Pam for asking that because that has come up before and our police um Scotland attendees also asked this or kind of commented on it it doesn't necessarily it doesn't cover that unexpected sudden death um there was a rash now behind why it covers inverted commas expected death as in somebody who who has had a life-limiting long-term condition. And the reason for that is that um, although the unexpected, or yeah, the kind of sudden death or unexpected death is actually probably a lot more acute in the grief side of things, it may be, it may or may not. Um, and it, it is more traumatic for the person left behind. The 
um, majority of people who die every year across the world in developed countries are dying from um, a long, well, a life limiting condition. There's a, you know, it is in essence in that kind of academia, it's an expected within the next 12 months or two years. Um, and so, but, but the caveat to that is that it's not always discussed. So somebody has a life limiting condition, but it's not always out there in the open that somebody with a, a long term life limiting lung condition, for instance, is actually approaching their last year of life or they're now becoming more unwell because it's assumed that everything's OK, you know, because it's our human way of coping with what's going on. We don't want to acknowledge this day in, day out if we have a life limiting condition. Um, so it is it is in essence covering the expected deaths in our community, but of them, there's a lot more than there is unexpected. So trying to get that across to the public. But then there's parts of the course then that cover the likes of planning ahead, like Susan said, which is for all of us to do. We can all plan ahead with that idea that inevitably we will all die. So we all need to have some form of a plan in place for that inevitability, i.e. Uh, a will, which we don't talk about in full in the course, but it's alluded to. Um, but what would we, who would we communicate to? Who would we tell this to? Where would we keep that information? And that's all in the resources that we share then after the course, so that it, it gives you that power to decide what you want to do with the information. I hope that covers what you were asking. The whole um, people don't know what to say. You were talking about people coming back from their holidays and, you know, your theatre. Um, and it was a, a situation where there was a teacher in a small community whose husband passed away. And she then put a note through everybody's door to say, I don't mind if you don't know what to say to me, but please do not cross the street. Um, and I actually think that is lovely. It's brave of her. Um, and it takes away that embarrassment. And she's always, she's actually almost welcome people to say, you can talk to me about this. Um, and I don't want to be socially excluded because of it. So please, even if you don't know what to say, please smile at me. Please cross the street. Please say hello. Kenny, would you like to say something? Kenny is our CEO at the Highland Hospice. <laughs> Thanks for that, and uh, there's a great opportunity to uh, quiz my colleagues. What, one of my, I suppose, expectations around last aid is that it becomes as culturally normal as first aid. So I'm not a, I'm not a health professional by background. That's, uh, I don't deal well with uh, blood or caring, um, don't like hospitals. Um, actually, on a personal level, don't particularly like talking about death. Um, very good at talking about it professionally, day in, day out, but I don't think I'm naturally disposed to it. So, but I also don't like broken bones and blood, but I have attended several first aid courses in my time because it's seen as a thing that you should do because, yep. well, it's, it's, if you want to be a good citizen, you should learn first aid. Um, and so that's what's really attracted me to the, to the last aid. I kind of almost see it for people like for people like me who would not, you know, would probably naturally avoid this topic. Um, 
But if you said to me, if you did say to me, like, let's go to a death cafe and talk about death, um, you, would, you wouldn't see me for dust. Um, but if you said to me, you know, would you like to be better prepared for looking after a loved one in the, because it's going to happen uh, and, and it has happened and I haven't been prepared for it, um, then I'd probably say, well, actually, yes, I probably would. My question for you really is, I mean, we, we've got this target of reaching a thousand people a year in Highland because I, I think that's how many people we need to reach to create a cultural tipping point where this is normalized. And if it is normalized, I mean, we talk about health professionals and most health professionals are terrible talking about mm -hmm. um, death and dying as well, because they're part of our cultural society. I mean, I think people more directly involved in palliative care are unusual um, and being comfortable with the topic. So if I, as a, as that, if I, as Joe Public, go to my health profession and say, I want to talk about this, then they're not going to get a choice. They're going to have to talk about this. So <laughs> I think it's important that we don't just target our health professionals, but we, we have to you know, enable our public to have that health literacy. That's the way we'll drive good planning and where we'll all get good deaths and we'll all be supported by bereavement. So what's, what's going to stop us reaching 1,000 people a year? What, what do you see as the barriers? Oh, Kenny, I don't want any barriers. I've got lots of big plans. Good. Um, Good. Yeah, <laughs> lots of big plans. Um, so one of one of our joint plans is start, I guess, from the bottom up. So what I'm going to say is I have an eight-year-old daughter who I think, Lynn, you said it yourself, you have children who have grown up with 20 years of your palliative care experience and now find death a common conversation around the dinner table. My eight-year-old is in exactly the same boat now. Um, she is like, oh, we're not talking about this again, Mum, are we? Can we, can we talk about something else? Um, but we've got a plan to hopefully um, introduce last day into the curriculum for S5 and S6 in schools and um, part of their ethics um, curriculum. And um, I was speaking to a young researcher from the University of Highlands and Islands the other day, so she was very involved in that. My, my big plan is um, we have government agencies coming on board. Um, I would like to promote this throughout businesses as well as a kind of a, it's compassion, but it's personnel management as well, because days are lost to grief that don't need to be lost to grief. I think if we have people in our workplace who we know we can go and say, I've chosen to come to you today, Kenny, and say, this is how I feel. And if you are there to say, that's okay, let's have a conversation about it, I'm more likely to come to work tomorrow. Um, so if I've chosen to come to you and you say, I don't know how to deal with this, then I start to shut down um, and feel like I maybe don't want to come to work. But there's a bigger, there's farming community, communities. Essentially, Mark, that's where I'm at. It's about getting into communities. Mm -hmm. um, farming communities, WI, Rotary clubs, ladies circle clubs, village fets, um, grassroots on the ground, word of mouth. Um, we can, we've got our Twitter, we've got our last aid, we've got our Facebook, um, but essentially.
essentially word of mouth. And I think you put it very nicely, Kenny, that um, you, you don't particularly feel like a death cafe is for you. That's okay. Um, but when you put it so nicely about would you like to do a course that then maybe you could be a bit more prepared then. Yeah, that's that's the, the conversation we want people to be having. And to for it exactly to be that, it's a, it's a public awareness thing and it's as common as first aid, mm-hmm. ultimately. So we have people listening to this podcast all over the world. Uh, how can they get involved? Now, the lucky ones maybe can come to Inverness, to one of your in-the-room courses, Inverness in Scotland, of course. But there are other ways to get involved, aren't there? There are online courses and there's a just a small donation well any donation between uh, a pound to 20 pounds um we i mean we're aiming to do this online but like even just to build on what may be a barrier i think people are a bit jaded from online courses and they want to go back to face to face and so part of the work that susan's going to be doing um is developing um areas and hubs and community hubs across the Highlands and hopefully beyond, where we're then able to have that, uh, you know, areas in, let's say, Loch Aber or down in Argyle and Butte or up in Thurso, uh, even if we wanted to venture down to the central belt, you know, that a hub can be developed where they can then start to deliver those face-to-face courses and be able to roll it out for their own community and speak to the people in their own communities. So that is the idea, that it's not just that... Inverness has the central hold to all, all, all things last aid in Scotland. Actually, we want Scotland to adopt this widely and be able to develop their own hubs. So that, that's the aim. And I suppose everything comes with a bit of momentum. So they can get in touch with Susan around those development opportunities. And they can, I would definitely recommend attending the course and to see how that fits with them and, and then what they um, take away from that, even just to having a little bit of time to mull it over. Because what we found with Police Scotland was when they had attended all the way back in 2019, they then reached out to us two years later wanting a bit more because two people who had attended had then had deaths in their family. They felt so well prepared that they then felt that this is, you know, would work for everybody. So online, there's the last aid, um, is Last Aid Highland Hospice. If you Google Last Aid and Highland Hospice all on, on the Google tab, it'll come on our landing page. And we've got Last Aid Twitter um, at, at Last Aid underscore Scott. Um, and then you can find us there. And I think as it's a German project, there is a sort of home website for the whole thing, but it's got a German title, Let's de Hilfe, isn't it? I think. Let's de Hilfe. Let's de Hilfe. <laughs> Let's de Hilfe. <laughs> Let's de that's right. Info. I'll put these links in the in the text under the podcast so people can can click on them. But searching around is is, is Mr. Google is your friend here as ever. Or Ms. Indeed, yes. Uh, so that's the way to do it. Uh, Lynn, um, can I just ask a very practical question, um, either online or face to face? I'm presuming it's not like like you said you went online, Mark. You don't just sit in your living room by yourself going through the course. It's a group interaction, yeah. is it? even online and what sort of size of groups and is there scope for sort of not drifting but having conversations around and about and then coming back or is it very much sticking to the program because inevitably people will bring their own thoughts stories to to play so just wondering how 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 does the actual program run and time scale and numbers of people 
Yeah, so there's, um, it's a three and a half hour course online um, and the same face to face. Um, and it very much depends, Lynn, on the group that attend. So what we have found is that sometimes we may have healthcare professional heavy groups, as in people who are interested, who work as nurses or whatever, and they just all seem to attend the same days. And the discussions, as you know, start to drift towards their professional experiences. And so the facilitators then very much have to bring it back to that personal view and personal experiences so that there is an inclusivity. Um, so we have opportunities for breakout rooms, and it's usually a maximum of 20 people attend even either on the face-to-face -face or online. Um, online is, tends to never reach that 20 um, and then a minimum, um, usually between six and eight people, just so that there is a good flow of dialogue. Um, um, so there's opportunities for breakout rooms. We do ask people to pop stuff in the chat boxes as much as possible, just to kind of come in, because there is it is a pres prescriptive course insofar as the presentation, but the facilitators are that human element to it and they're bringing their own experiences and their own style so um that's kind of what what we've um harnessed and enjoyed with the last few years of delivering it susan i don't know do you have anything else to add to lynn's question no i think um yeah it's you know the course is delivered hybrid so at the moment there are people in the room that are attending at the same time as the people um via zoom as mark did um but it also gives us a great opportunity. We've had people from France, from Spain, yeah. um, joining on our sessions as well. Um, We've had which people is from great. Canada. Yeah. Yeah. So we, um, it's good to have their input because obviously there's cultural differences there mm. too, and it, it, it's good. It's good conversation um, around people's own experiences. Yeah. I was very impressed when I did the course. It was hybrid. There were people in the room in Inverness and there were those of us online on Zoom. And I thought it was very well managed. Uh, packed, packed with content, but also space to reflect, space to talk, space to be in breakout rooms, space to think related to your own stuff. Uh, really, uh, and a whole host of ideas and information coming across in that three and a half hours. So well worth three and a half hours of anyone's time. Uh, so going online with our good friends here in Inverness is definitely one option for people anywhere in the world. Uh, but I'm sure there are other hubs springing up and other places around the world that are also involved in this in this movement. And uh, uh, particularly in Germany, there are definitely uh, German language uh, options there Absolutely. as well. Yeah. Well, yes. Yeah, so last year, France has started um, rolling out and there's France, Italy, like the whole of the main European landscape but then Canada, Australia, India are talking about it as well and as Susan mentioned Brazil so if if in doubt you can contact us and we will find out as well so no matter where you are in the world we can find out. I think are we at 22 countries Siobhan is that right was it? Oh, I possibly oh, I've I lost know. count <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So look, thank you very much indeed, uh, Susan and Siobhan, for joining us today on Village in the City. It's been really interesting to find out more about Last Aid, find out more about the course, find out more about your hopes for the project as it goes forward. And thank you, everyone else, Lynn and Pam and Kenny, for joining us as well. And of course, you can join us on uh, online at villageinthecity.net 
for lots of information about how to create your own micro local communities, your own neighborhood communities, of which Last Aid might be a part. And there's all sorts of other things, resources, podcasts, uh, online sessions, and ways of joining in and conversing with other people around the world who are engaged in this micro local community building. That all, all happens at villageinthecity.net. And we're on Twitter at Village in the C2, CI2. Anyway, search us on Twitter too. So thank you very much indeed, Siobhan and Susan, and we'll see you next time here on Village in the City. Bye.